listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to One Hour at a Time and uh, happy 2008 to everyone out there. Um, today we have, uh, we're going to talk about the neurobiology of addiction. And with us we have Dr. Steve Grant, who is the chief of the clinical neuroscience science branch in the Division of Clinical Neuroscience and Behavioral Treatment at the National Institute of um, Drug Abuse. And NIDA, which is the short shortened name for it, is part of the National Institute of Health. And Dr. Grant, maybe you could begin by just talking a little bit about NIDA and what goes on there. NIDA is the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and our mission is to do scientific research into the area of the causes, prevention, and treatment of of substance abuse. Um, broadly speaking, across many different types of substances, the one exception being alcohol, there is a separate institute, the National Institute of Alcohol and Alcoholism, Alcohol Abuse, um, that covers alcohol specifically. And that is um, primarily a function of the history of the evolution of NIH. Um, so when we talk about the National Institute of, of Drug Abuse, most of the um, research done on drug abuse in the world is, draw, is done at um, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Isn't that correct? That is correct. We, we fund the majority of substance abuse research across the world. Uh, we have a very vigorous and um, broad-ranging international program, a lot of collaborations across the world, South Africa, um, various points in Europe, um, some in South America. Uh, there is uh, a concern that this is not simply a public health issue um, for the United States, but it's a global public health issue. And that's kind of, um, that's, that's a relatively fresh perspective compared to when I first entered the treatment um, field in the uh, late 70s, where um, addiction was seen to be more of, um, you know, an issue of, of willpower. It was something that um, people were kind of held accountable for, and uh, the fact that we're looking at it from a public health perspective is refreshingly new. And when we think about addiction being um, a brain disease, what, is, what exactly do you mean when you say addiction is a brain disease? Well, what we mean by it is that that the process of addiction not only includes the action of drugs of abuse in changing brain function, but there may be uh, predisposing factors that put someone at risk that is due to uh, variations in brain function that may make someone, one person, more liable to continue with drug use after a period of experimentation than, uh, than another person. 
And this may have to do with normal variation in brain function, psychological function, as well as um, some of the more cutting-edge research uh, regarding uh, genetic variation or regulation of genes. So while we know that there's um, some genetic susceptibility for addiction, there also seems to be um, certain certain people have certain things in their brain that make them more susceptible, even without the genetics? Well, this is, this is always, as you pointed out, this is a long-standing um, issue that there might, it in, back in the, in the 30s, in the heyday of Freudian analysis, the, there was uh, the so-called addictive personality um, it was never really pinned down very much as to what exactly that um, might be. But we know now that there are a number of psychosocial dimensions that put one at greater risk, and we're starting to tie those functions to particular ways, uh, places in the brain and functions of the brain um, that may be dysregulated or that react differently um, across individuals. So there's a large amount of individual differences. What we are current, what is really the current cutting edge of research, is to to try and capture uh, individuals before they initiate drug use and track them over a period of time, taking some of our state-of-the-art brain measures that are non-invasive, don't uh, require any kind of exposure to um, anything that is um, might be uh, damaging or invasive in the individual, track them over a period of time and discern what may lead one person to um, try drugs one time and give it up and somebody else who gets captured by the drug use very quickly and progresses in a downward spiral into um, substance abuse and dependence. Are there certain protective factors that have been identified for people that help prevent substance? Again, there are... We don't know what those protective factors are in the brain. One of the primary biological factors is age. We do have good epidemiological evidence that the later that one starts to um, be exposed to the various drugs of abuse, and that includes um, things such as cigarettes as well as the illicit drugs, the less likely one is to have to develop a um, abuse or dependency problem. The earlier one starts conversely, the more likely that you are to develop a substance abuse problem. So um, when we think about addiction, we think about it as being um, biological as well as environmental. Yes. And um, and as well as kind of spiritual in terms of what people's values are as well. So when we think about addiction being a brain disease, 
is it is it fair to say that um, like alcohol doesn't cause alcoholism? That alcohol doesn't cause the addiction? There's something within the brain that because not everybody who drinks gets alcoholism. Not everybody who takes cocaine ends up a cocaine addict. Well, that there is a very strong social and cultural um, influence, as you said, an environmental influence, as well as the uh, influence of the individ- on the individuals. And we're really at very early stages of understanding how those things interact in terms of brain function. What we have spent the last two decades unraveling in great detail is how drugs of abuse work in the brain, how they exert their addictive properties, and what brain circuits are modified, how they're modified in response to chronic administration of the drug. We have, it's only been lately that we have started to look at some of the non-pharmacological or psychological components such as differences in personality. Those types of questions, while always recognized to be important, really had to wait for the technology to catch up, that we could ask those types of questions in brain studies. So can you expand a little bit on that? What role does personality play? Well, we're not... I don't have a definitive answer to you because this is... Um, This is really the cutting edge of research. We understand that there are some factors that are um, associated with long-term drug use, and we're starting to look at how those factors are implemented or um, how the brain actually functions to do those types of things. And I'll give you one example, and that is impulsivity. Um, people who are more impulsive are generally seen to be at greater risk for substance abuse. This quickly leads you to the question of what do you mean by impulsive? And it turns out that impulsivity has many, many dimensions. And concurrently, we have found out that there are many um, ways in which or many parts of the brain that are involved in this personality factor of impulsivity. And there's many ways to measure it. Substance abusers turn out to be generally um, high on impulsivity, especially on laboratory tasks that you can um, that you can use to examine their brain activity while doing these types of tasks. Some tasks require you to make a choice between getting a smaller gain or a smaller reward now or waiting for a larger reward. And if you choose the smaller reward now, that's a measure of impulsivity. The longer you can wait, the less impulsive you are. And it turns out that there are certain brain areas that correspond to your ability to wait. And those brain areas uh, tend to be less active in substance abusers. 
Another type of impulsivity is called um, inhibition or the ability to stop. And think of yourself going through, um, coming up to a traffic light. And the traffic light is green and you get closer and it turns to yellow and you're not quite at the intersection yet and then it turns red and you've got to hit the brakes and stop before you go through the intersection. So when we're talking about addiction being a brain disease, we're just beginning to look at the role that impulsivity and inhibition play and somebody eventually be developing an addiction or a dependence on substances. We'll be back with Dr. Grant in just a moment to continue our discussion on um, the neurobiology of addiction. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour Time. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Grant from NIDA, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And we were talking a little bit about um, the neurobiology of addiction and the fact that addiction is a brain disease, and it's not really a question of willpower. And um, one of the – we've just kind of uh, run up against this where I work here at Westbridge, but when we talk about opiate dependence, we we often think, A, that it's heroin addiction – when, at least in northern New England, the vast majority of it is the result of mis- uh, diversion of prescribed medication or 
we're prescribing of opiate um, dependence or opiate medication. And um, there's over the years, there's been kind of, um, I don't know, uh, some people have been very pro-opiate replacement therapy, and some people see it as just keeping people addicted. And I wondered what NIDA's uh, view of opiate replacement therapy is. NIDA has had a long history of supporting research on the development and use and responsible uh, treatment protocols for uh, opiate replacement therapy. It is highly effective in having um, patients be able to maintain a productive and healthy lifestyle without having to um, seek illicit drugs or go through the process of using illicit drugs that will um, expose them to ex- uh, expose them to disease or legal consequences. Um, it allows people to hold jobs and regain a, being a productive member of society. You would not, I think the best um, way of looking at this is you would not consider someone who is diabetic to be um, any less um, or you would not deny them the ability to get replacement insulin for their disease in order for them to maintain um, their function. You would not insist that the only way that they could um, continue to live their life would be through dietary restriction. And I think we'd have, we have to start looking at um, the various treatments for addiction and particularly opioid replacement therapy as something very much akin to insulin. Are there brain studies that you can look at that um, for people who have opiate dependence so you can see um, how much of the brain has been affected by um, the, op- the opiate addiction? Yes, there, there's been quite a few um, studies that have been conducted over the years and an increasing number of studies that have looked at um, the effects of opiates on the brain. We have the ability to actually measure the number of opiate receptors in the, br- in the brain in living humans using a technology called positron emission tomography. That's a uh, method that Dr. Volkow was one of the pioneers in applying to the area of addiction. And we can, there is a means to look at the number of opiate receptors in the brain. And you can show that the number, that opiate receptors change as a function of exposure to uh, um, opiates, whether they are prescribed opiates or legitimate pain management, or opiates that are used recreationally. You do get changes in the, in the opiate receptors. And when one goes through withdrawal, there, the, the amount of withdrawal, that, um, the physical withdrawal, is a function of the changes in those opiate receptors. What we also know is that there are changes in brain function that go beyond the opiate receptor and touch upon various cognitive functions or um, uh, 
psychological functions. And some of those, some of that is alleviated by opiate, depend, uh, opiate replacement therapy, and some of that is not. And that's an area of very active research. Are, do, are we born with a certain amount of opiate receptors, or do we have the ability to um, increase them, or are we just have a fixed amount that we're born with? Oh, that's an excellent question. And the brain is a very, very dynamic structure. It is designed to respond to changes and demands from the environment. And so opiate, the number of opiate receptors are regulated through the, by the process that information flows through the brain. And so the number of opiate receptors on a particular neuron or in a particular area of the brain may go up and down depending on what the individual is doing and interacting with their environment. For example, someone who is in chronic pain will have changes in their opiate receptors because the, opiate, the endogenous opiate system, we have chemicals that are produced in our brain that are there to interact with the opiate receptors. We have our own pain control mechanisms within our brain. And when you are in chronic pain, there are changes to the opiate receptors and the production of these endogenous opiates, and so they are regulated. When you take an exogenous opiate, an opiate drug, a prescription drug or a drug like heroin, that will impact on the number of opiate receptors as well. So it's been my experience in, in doing a lot of um, interviews with and for admission of, of people with um, opiate dependence is that some people will say, I first felt normal the first time I, I, I had an opiate. It's the first time I really felt my brain felt normal. And I'm wondering what that is biologically. You know what? I'm wondering about that too myself. And in fact, um, this is touches upon a research initiative that we are starting at night. We're in the early stages of planning at NIDA that we had a preliminary announcement about. And in um, experimental psychology terms, that's called negative reinforcement. That is, when you're in distress and then something alleviates that distress, that that is perceived in the brain or behaviorally as something that you want to do again because it's relieving from distress. And in the clinical realm, that's been called self-medication, that people are taking drugs to make themselves feel better. We've known for a long time that there is enormous co-occurrence of other types of emotional and psychiatric disorders that go along with substance abuse. And it's very likely that a large number of people who do progress to dependence have some pre-existing or concurrent um, psychological or emotional undergoing. And that is um, contributing to the effect of the drug. So the drug is alleviating that distress, 
and they want that will then reinforce or reward them for taking the drug. Uh, what we really want to know is how that works in the brain. And work in animals has shown that after chronic administration of a number of different types of drugs, both opiates and stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamine, there's a change in the reward system or the reinforcement system in the brain. It becomes less active. It becomes less responsive. And so the person starts sliding into a negative affective state. And the, they then take the drug not so much to get high, but to relieve that negative affective state. So you could see that someone who is depressed, or perhaps has anxiety disorder, instead of bringing this problem to their physician or to a counselor, and that they get um, the opportunity to take an illicit drug. Maybe they um, steal a um, prescription from someone or sold a prescription opioid from someone or um, gets offered um, cocaine at a party and all of a sudden this anxiety or depression is alleviated. And that's where that um, would, could underlie the clinical reports that you just described where someone says, I feel normal now. What we want to know is what is different in the brains of those people. How pre-existing is it? How much of, can we identify a brain signature for someone who might be in that state that would put them at great risk for developing a dependence so we can have preventive interventions to say to this person, if, if you try um, and alleviate your distress by taking drugs illicitly, you're going to get into big trouble. You know, one of the... Um things I've always told my kids because I come from a long line of uh, Irish Catholic alcoholics is that, you know, the, sta the deck is just kind of stacked against you, <laughs> you know. So um, just from a genetic point of view that you've got a, got a bigger risk than maybe some of your, your peers do. But um, having said that, one of the things that I hear a lot in the treatment profession is that, is that you're substituting one drug for another. And I know you touched on it with the diabetes with the diabetes, but people can, in fact, be sober and still take some type of opiate replacement therapy, be it methadone or buprenorphine. Or, um, yes, you, you need to, I think the, the view of this is that they are not taking this in um, a context where the drug is used for recreational purposes, that it is the same as someone who needs the drug for a, a disease purpose. And that we know that when people use opiate replacement therapy and are engaged in counseling, the outcomes are much better than if they're not using opiate replacement therapy. Is that not so? Absolutely. So when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Grant about um, cravings and what, what are cravings all about and why are some people more susceptible to them to others. So we'll be right back. 
with Dr. Grant from NIDA. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families can recover from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking to Dr. Marie Grant from NIDA. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of things in the last half hour, uh, the neurobiology of addiction, a little bit about opiate addiction and opiate replacement therapy. And I'd like to talk a little bit, or a lot about craving, because that seems to be one thing that um, really trips people up in early recovery. Some people are just have these intense cravings, and other people seem to be less, tortured by them, and I'm just wondering, what do we know about cravings from a neurobiological perspective? Actually, we know a lot more than we did 10 years ago. Uh, We've made some substantial advances in craving, and they've been quite surprising. Um, And the concept of craving has been very controversial and difficult to pin down in a scientific manner, because Craving is a subjective experience. And as you said, some people experience very intense cravings or report very intense cravings. Other people do not. And um, empirical studies in the late 80s, early 90s, were having a difficult time demonstrating a clear relationship between the experience of craving and actual drug seeking, whereas the 
clinical experience, people coming in for treatment and people who were doing the treatment were constantly hearing that I, that the, the patient would um, report, I had very intense cravings for the drug and I subsequently relapsed and found myself using the drug even though I didn't intend to do it because I just had this overwhelming craving. In the mid, um, for a long time, it was thought that cravings were tied directly to the mechanism of action of the drug. But in the mid-1990s, using brain imaging um, techniques, it was found that when you presented subjects with stimuli, videotapes of other people using drugs or drug-related um, paraphernalia, that you got two very interesting results. One, as you said before, not everybody craves. Not every subject would report craving. But many subjects, on the, on the whole, even though they did not report craving, you could see certain areas of the brain lighting up, becoming active, or becoming or turning off during the presentation of those drug-related stimuli. And it was surprising because many of those areas were not areas that had been previously associated with the direct effects of the drug, with the mechanism of action of the drug. Rather, these were areas of the brain that had been associated with memory or cognitive processing. So uh, a, a one process called working memory, which is your ability to keep information online, like when you try and remember a telephone number. And this is an area of the brain in the frontal cortex, the frontal dorsolateral cortex. That area became active. Another area that became active was the amygdala, which is an area that has uh, we have um, been able to establish as being important in the emotional content of memory, particularly the arousal or the intensity of um, an, a, the emotional event. So the more positive or the more negative it is, this area helps you remember the stimuli that are associated with that. And animal studies went on to show that these areas in the frontal cortex and these areas, and this area in the, um, in the amygdala in the brain, in the, uh, in the medial temporal lobe, which is on the side of your brain, are very important in relapse. So in animal studies, you can show that if you present a stimulus that has been associated with the drug presentation before, it'll increase the animal's um, probability of taking or pressing a lever to take a drug again even though they've become that you have had them abstinent for several weeks. Uh, this would be considered to be something akin to craving in humans. So there's a very nice parallel there between the brain structures that we associated, that we found in the brain imaging studies in humans and what we have found to be causal areas in, um, in animal studies. 
but these were not the areas that we thought that the drugs exerted their action on initially. These seem to be areas that are secondary or processing information subsequent to the drug administration. They're, they're second in line, so to speak. And so this helped explain perhaps why some of the treatments that were directly um, oriented towards blocking the action of an abuse drug was not effective in getting people to stop seeking the drug because they still had these memories of the drug action. They remembered the stimuli in the environment that was associated with the um, emotional reaction to the drug. They remembered the stimuli and it, it preoccupied them. Um, it distracted them from other things they should perhaps be um, keeping in mind, like their like requirements of the job. And another area that was associated with this is called the insula. The insula is a very interesting area. It's also part of the cerebral cortex. And it's a part of the cerebral cortex that is um, the receptive area, the sensory receptive area for your gut, for literally how you feel inside for your internal sensations. And it turned out that that area was also related to the intensity of self-reported craving. So the more that area became activated during um, craving, the more the person would report that they had an intense craving. And so this is literally an area that is encoding the feeling of craving. And earlier this year, we had a study um, that was published um, in Science Magazine, a very prestigious journal, that was done by Antoine Bashara and colleagues, where they looked at uh, patients who had unfortunately suffered a stroke in various brain areas, and one of those brain areas was the insula. And what they found was of those people who had su suffered a stroke in the insula, they spontaneously gave up smoking and did not report any substance cravings. And as you know, and many of your listeners may know, smoking cigarettes is one of the hardest um, addictions to give up. And people do report a lot of craving for cigarettes. They relapse many times. It takes many attempts. But these people just gave it up literally overnight after their stroke. And they never felt any desire or craving for these, for this, um, for the cigarettes again. And this provides us with a, again, with the possibility of a causal link of activity in a particular brain area being very important to not only the experience of craving, but also as a trigger for drug seeking. So in many ways, um, cravings and triggers, there's a very fine line. I would say there's, there's no line at all. Um, the, the difference between cravings and triggers is really um, a craving is what you experience. A trigger is some stimulus 
which may be an internal stimulus. It may be a certain way that you feel, or it may be some event in the environment. And it's how it's being processed in the brain and what brain areas are um, activated that may distinguish whether that is merely something that distracts you from what you're doing or something that triggers a sense of behaviors where you go out and seek the drug. Well, I know in um, in most treatment, we really differentiate between craving as something that's more physiological that you will experience but will eventually go away in time and the triggers are something different. And, um, you know, and then we try to develop relapse prevention programs around triggers. I know some people will tie, like their cocaine use, to certain music that they listen to and then the music becomes a trigger or, or using a credit card to get your line straight and the credit card becomes something that starts to, to trigger them. And, and that we, you know, we think cravings is for more of being something physiological that you experience that, you know, if you, if you, uh, take some, Hard candy, it'll go away, or if you go to a meeting, it'll go away. Or um, so this is really interesting. Well, I would say that that distinction is probably true, depending on which part of the brain is talking. Uh, one of the challenges future is for the people who are on the front lines of treatment to become more aware of the findings in the brain research um, world in terms of these types of issues, let's say the distinction between triggers and craving, and conversely, people like myself from the brain research world to become more cognizant of how people who are providing the treatments approach these problems and what the experience of the patients are. So we can start melding the these two approaches, these two worlds, and come up with more effective treatments that are really going to get at the um, increase the ability of people to cope with these types of issues. Um, this is uh, really fascinating, and I hope you all our listeners out there are enjoying this. Um, we will be right back with our last segment with Dr. Grant, and we're going to talk a little bit about how addiction affects memory and cognition. So um, stay tuned, and we'll be back in just a minute. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge 
at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism, spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Dr. Grant from the uh, National Institute of Drug Addiction. And um, while we were at break, I, I was talking a little bit about how fascinating it would be to eventually have treatments that were targeted toward cravings or specifically toward um, to help people with triggers. And uh, I know there's been research on cue extinction where someone is shown, you were mentioning earlier, the, the PET scans and somebody is shown uh, they, they may uh, do their crack pipe in a certain way or they may have a certain habit in, in terms of a um, ritual, in terms of using their crack or heroin or whatever, and that they just keep doing this over and over and over again to desensitize themselves, and they're able to see that the brain becomes less and less stimulated. And, um, and, and the whole idea that we hold sometimes people accountable for relapse that may be it may not be as willful and that the brain may be um, unconsciously, we, we may be doing things that uh, consciously we're, we're not even aware of, if that makes any sense. But, yes. You know. uh, increasingly, we're across, um, not only in the field of addiction, but um, across general, we're finding out that what we are aware of is really just the tip of the iceberg of the types of information and the amount of processing of um, information that's going on in the brain. And the issue of triggers or environmental stimuli um, or even feeling states do, does not necessarily have to be conscious. Um, 
in order for it to perhaps activate brain areas that are important in um, leading to relapse. There has been um, hints, and now we're starting to follow them up in a systematic manner, that perhaps um, being aware of cravings makes you more resilient or at least gives you the opportunity to exert a certain amount of regulation consciously on your behavior. But it's when you're not aware that you may be in the most risk. And, you know, and experience tells us, um, those of us who work in the, in the profession, that, you know, I, I know people that have relapsed and afterwards, like, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, it, in the whole process of it, it's almost like they disassociate or they black out. They just don't even know until it's all over that they've done it. And, well, uh, you can look at it as dissociation or blacking out, but you can look at it a different way, that this is actually a normal process, that a lot of our behavior, a lot of what we do moment to moment, day to day, second to second, we are not aware of doing. You may be fiddling with a pencil or doodling or pulling on your socks um, or um, unbuttoning a shirt button and buttoning it back up again, and you're not aware of that particular behavior. And really, we're finding out that some of the same brain mechanisms that underlie that type of what we call automatic behavior or non-conscious behavior gets hijacked during addiction. And addiction is an expression of that that kind of brain mechanism where it gets directed towards the purpose of obtaining and consuming drugs. So rather than being something like a, um, uncon- a simple behavior like buttoning, unbuttoning your shirt, it's, a, it's the behavior of taking and consuming drugs, which is not approved by society, leads to adverse health uh, consequences as well as legal and social consequences. But the action of the drug may promote the behavior to move in that kind of un- from a conscious to an unconscious type of behavior. And the most recent work on craving supports that idea. This was work that was done by Dr. Volkow, Dr. Nora Volkow, who is the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and Dr. Anna Rose Childress at the University of Pennsylvania, where, the, again, they showed subjects, um, pictures of people using drugs and solicited um, whether or not this evoked craving, and they looked at the release of a particular brain chemical, dopamine, which has been associated with the um, reinforcing actions, that is, the ability of a drug to lead to you to take the drug again or for the drug to make you feel good, what is called reward or reinforcement. What they found was quite surprising, though. 
uh, and this work was in was independently replicated at um, pretty much the same time. So there were two groups who did this at the same time: a group, um, Dr. Volkow and Dr. Childress, in collaboration, and then a second group um, working at Johns Hopkins University um, with under direction of Dr. Dean Wong and um, people at the NIDA Intramural Research Program. They found exactly the same thing, which was quite remarkable. And that is, they found that there was an increase in release of dopamine in those people who craved that was in the part of the brain that is associated with automatic habitual behavior. But it was not the same area of the brain where you get a release of dopamine when you actually give the drug. So the acute effects of the drug release dopamine in a part of the brain um, called the ventral striatum, which is near the base of the brain. The When you saw the cues or the triggers, it released dopamine in a part of the brain called the dorsal striatum, which is more associated with um, automatic stimulus response um, habits, what we would just normally call uh, a habit. That is, you you see something and you react to it. So when when we think about all these different areas of the brain that are being affected by um, substance is substance use, substance addiction, um, on memory in terms of our you know, I know certainly people in early recovery have very poor memories, and some people seem to get it back and others don't. But um, can you speak a little bit about memory and cognition? Well, we're finding out that drugs of abuse interact with those brain systems that are set up for memory, that drugs actually interact or um kind of drill into areas of the the processes of the brain that make the brain plastic, that, that allow the brain to change in response to things that are going on in the environment, to change with experience. And that drugs actually um, interact with those brain mechanisms at a very, very deep and molecular level. So in the... A current concept is that addiction is a memory, that addiction is a change in brain function that is induced by the drug and is a memory, a long-lasting change in brain function um, as a result of the drug. Now, what you're talking about is generally what people think of uh, technically as declarative memory or explicit memory. And I, this seems hard to believe, but I believe we're at the end of our hour, Dr. Grant. Um, we could go on for another hour about Easily. That. Thank you so much for um, participating and standing in for Dr. Walkoff. I know she, her schedule changed, but thank you so much for being part of One Hour at a Time. We 
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.